toddler's ABCs. Athletics beyond coronavirus. Hillel Cutler's ABCs. Athletics beyond coronavirus. Hillel Ascribe Welcome to Hillel Cutler's ABC's Athletics Beyond Coronavirus. I'm Hillel Cutler, a veteran journalist who specializes in both healthcare and sports. Sometimes I write about healthcare within sports, like medical providers who work at ski resorts or those tending to athletes at the Olympics. In this era of the coronavirus and the lockdown that is helping to save our lives by limiting the spread of the disease, I think often of what the people who work in sports are experiencing at a time that they would normally be on the field, the court, or the rink. I think of the athletes, the coaches, the broadcasters, the executives, the game day staff, and I'm interested in how fans are faring now. On this podcast, I interview them about the very real here and now, and also about the day after, when the lives that we prefer to live can resume, and when the sports we love return. I welcome your comments, including suggestions for interviews. Just email me at hk at hillelthescribecommunications.com. My guests today are two men in Southern California with a passion for history, especially baseball history. Terry Cannon is a library assistant in Pasadena. He is the executive director of the Baseball Reliquary and the co-director of the Institute for Baseball Studies, which is housed at Whittier College. Chris Epting is the author of several dozen books, including on baseball history and on the history of American music and pop culture. Our conversation today will deal with sports places and sports characters. Gentlemen, welcome to Hello Cutler ABC's Athletics Beyond Coronavirus. Thanks for having us. Yeah, it's, thank you. It's a pleasure. Terry, I mentioned Pasadena and also Whittier College, and the first associations I have to those two places are Pasadena as the place where Jackie Robinson grew up and Whittier College as where Richard Nixon attended. I'm a very interested in presidential history. I know that Robinson campaigned for Nixon in the 1960 presidential election. And I'm wondering what else we know about their connection. Like, did, did Nixon ever watch Robinson play at UCLA? Did he stand up for him in the 1947 season or beyond? Well, I don't know uh, much about uh, the, that there was much of an interaction between them before uh, Nixon's presidential run. At least I've never read anything about that. And of course, uh, as we know, uh, Jackie's support of uh, Nixon uh, was very short-lived. Um, and of course, very controversial part of, of Jackie's uh, post-baseball career because uh, uh, many people were surprised that he would support uh, the Republican Nixon. Uh, and it wasn't too uh, long into that presidential campaign that he changed his allegiance uh, mm -hmm. when he saw that uh, uh, he initially felt that uh, Nixon would be more supportive of the civil rights movement. Uh, and and uh, he found out pretty early on that, that that was not the case. But I'm not aware of any much inter interaction if, if Nixon ever saw uh, uh, Robinson played baseball uh, when Robinson was playing at Pasadena Junior College or at UCLA. I highly doubt it. Mm. What about you, Chris? Have, have you researched that at all? Have you looked into that at all? No, I, I basically know to the degree that Terry, what he explained, um, and and I would highly. I think if he was there watching, we'd probably have known that at some point. You know, in today's day and age, photos tend to pop up that show something surprising. There's always people, like as we're sitting here right now, there are people digging for things, you know, around the world, looking for trace evidence and stuff like that. So, uh, no, I'm not aware of anything else beyond what Terry described. You live in Newport Beach, right? In I'm in Huntington Beach, actually. Huntington Beach. Are baseball, uh, are the baseball players or other athletes who come from there? 
Oh yeah. Well, I mean, Orange County, I mean, look, Southern California in general, obviously has produced a lot of ball players. Orange County in, uh, in particular has, I think a good baseball history. I did a whole book just on the baseball history of Orange County. I mean, you've got Gary Carter came out of Sunny Hills high school in Fullerton, Burp Lylevin. Um, Walter Johnson, I think is the most interesting story out of Orange County. He moved here as a kid from Kansas. His dad took a job uh, in the oil fields out in what today is called Brea, what, what back then was called Olinda. And he learned how to play baseball in Orange County, went to Fullerton High School, and basically built his career here. So that to me is the most compelling um, Orange County baseball story. You know, Johnson, in addition to that, came back in 1924. He was invited by the town to come stage a charity game, which he did with Babe Ruth. They both uh, managed uh, different all-star teams and then played in the game. And Ruth actually pitched in that game. And that's a whole other story. But but yeah, Orange County has, has an intriguing baseball history. Uh, again, lots of players have come out of here, some some better known than others. Here in Huntington Beach, a number of years ago, we had the Little League World Series champions uh, come out, which was, which was a big thing for the city. So, you know, baseball, obviously, because of the weather, has always loomed large in Southern California. And, uh, and, and Orange County in particular has a a decent history itself. Have you run into ball players in your neck of the woods? Oh yeah, I mean, um, I'm trying to think. You know, Lenny Dykstra from uh, from Cypress. I've talked to him about Orange County. Uh, yeah, I mean, you meet you know, and, and also having the Angels here. Obviously, you know, you've always got players living here. Um, what I find interesting, beyond just the well-known ball players, was early on. I mean, a hundred years ago, the oil there was a lot of oil in Orange County. And there was a very organized league of, of uh, oil teams, you know, and they, they weren't pros, they were, but they were good ball players, a lot of good, strong young guys from the area. And so it's fun, to, I think, to research sort of the lesser known uh, aspects of the game that aren't even about the major leagues, but just about the effects that baseball had on communities and how important it was to towns like Huntington Beach to be able to go out and watch baseball. Uh, by the ocean and a pretty little ballpark by Coast Highway, you know, and that was enough entertainment. It was more than just, um, you know, knowing how uh, Pacific Coast League was doing or, or their teams back east. There was a real local flavor to it that I think was really vital. Now, I always wanted to ask you, Chris, what was your first Angel game at Anaheim Stadium? That's a good question. The very first time I went to Anaheim Stadium was right after I moved here. It was for the 1988 All-Star Game, which was, which was a fun intro. You know, I had never been to the ballpark before that, and that was kind of fun. And then as far as an Angel game goes, I think it was about a year after that, in about 1989. I was always sorry I hadn't seen the ballpark when it was originally in its open-air format. Yes. You know, in 1979. They closed it for football. And I always loved the images. I was happy in 1998 when they went back and modified it and opened it up again. I think it was a you know, very pretty ballpark early on, and I like that it today retains more of that original flavor from when it originally opened. Well, so, I was actually there at the park in 1966 for the exhibition series against oh, wow. the San Francisco Giants when it opened. Oh. I was at the, I was at the Sunday game, so I was actually at the second game that was ever played there before the regular season started in 1966, and it was a beautiful ballpark. I, I mean, it was it was a gorgeous park before they closed it in with, yeah. the, with the big A out in left field. And you know what's funny is that yeah, which it, it was the scoreboard back then. I think what's interesting is that. Um, People don't realize the history at Angel Stadium. They don't equate the fact that, like, Mickey Mantle played there. Or with the early All-Star game, you would have, like, Clemente, these various players. I, would, I always thought it was fun, like, when Pujols was racking up certain milestones. Like, I think it was maybe number, like, 538. But that Mantle hit his 538. And that's not the number, but it's around there, in Angel Stadium. I think a lot of local mm -hmm. fans don't realize that legends, they, they think of it as a new ballpark. It's the fourth oldest ballpark in the majors today, which is bizarre. Yeah. Dodger Stadium being the third oldest. Of course, we're talking behind Wrigley and, uh, and Fenway. But, there's, but there is more history here than people... Uh, you know, when you were talking, when both of you guys were talking about Jackie Robinson a minute ago, I think about him playing himself in the Jackie Robinson story shot at La Palma Park, in, in part, in Anaheim, 
where you see him playing baseball, playing himself in Orange County, California. So it's, again, we, we had a lot of different, uh, you know, historic little ballparks here that hosted spring training. I mean, Connie Mack would bring the A's down for a couple of years to train in Anaheim in 1939 and 40. So you did have legends roaming sort of the, the open wild west down here in the 30s and 40s. Right. I, I think that, that in that All-Star game, um, a rookie pitcher named Tom Seaver either got the win or the save in that game, which was an extra in the game. In the first, yeah, that was in the first All-Star game in Anaheim. Yeah, I think the one I saw in 88 was the second time it was held there. And then it was held a third time uh, in, in 2010 or 11 or something like that. But, but yeah, so we, so we have history out here. And again, a lot of local ball players, And it's fun to, to, to track that history. And there's always good, you know, there's always good college ball here at, the, you know, at Fullerton. There's, you know, the high schools. There's a, there are really good programs here. If you like baseball under normal circumstances, there are plenty of places to find it outside of Angel Stadium. Right. Terry, can you tell us a little bit about the Institute and about the reliquary? Because in my mind, I, when I'm on Facebook and I see all the interesting posts, I tend to get the two mixed up. So what is the distinction between them? Well, the Baseball Reliquary uh, was an organization that I founded in the mid-1990s. Um, and it is a nonprofit organization uh, a kind of a peripatetic organization. And we, we put on all kinds of baseball exhibits and programs, uh, primarily throughout the Los Angeles area. Uh, what happened was over the years, since we don't really have a home, the reliquary had built a very large uh, collection of books and publications, research materials related to baseball. And so about five years ago, uh, I, was looking for a home for this material that we had uh, accumulated because uh, it wasn't really accessible uh, by the for the public. Um, so I uh, happened upon Whittier College. There are three professors there who teach baseball courses, and um, they said, "Hey, we'd love to uh, uh, bring your collection here to Whittier College, and let's let's get to work on it." So we uh, formed uh, the Institute for Baseball Studies which is, I, uh, to my understanding, it's the first uh, research collection of its kind at a, a college or university in the United States. So we have uh, a, a large archive there consisting of over 5,000 books and publications, uh, all kinds of uh, uh, the, the writings uh, of, uh, and, and research materials of various authors such as Paul Dixon, uh, and the material is accessible for the students that uh, use the, uh, are involved in the baseball courses there. And then it's open to the public uh, every Friday. Uh, that's my off day generally from the Pasadena Public Library. So I go in and I open the institute to the public so they can come in and access the materials. So uh, uh, it's it, for all of these many years where the baseball reliquary really hasn't had a home, this is kind of a, a home of sorts for us. Uh, the reliquary still is, in, is independent of the Institute. We still do exhibits and programming and we do our annual uh, Shrine of the Eternal ceremonies. That's all distinct uh, from the Institute. Um, so that's a, a little bit of the, uh, about the relationship between the two organizations. And so those 5,000 books that you mentioned, are there documents and, and um, mementos, artifacts that are part of the collection? Yes, there are. We, when we started the Institute, we thought we would primarily be collecting uh, paper materials, books and magazines, scorecards, programs, that kind of thing. But uh, over the years, we've been offered a number of collections. We have a very large collection on the history of the Negro Leagues, which includes over 300 signed baseballs. And that wasn't really our plan initially to bring in a lot of uh, memorabilia. But what we have found is that the memorabilia is for exhibits uh, and also it inspires students in terms of, uh, uh, you know, the, the in terms of, of projects. A good example is one of the professors, Joe Price, taught a course uh, in January on the history of the Negro Leagues. 
And one of the projects that the students did was they each selected one of the signed baseballs and then used that uh, as a way of writing about those individual players. Uh, and so they wrote papers on the players based upon that signed baseball. So, uh, so we do have a, a, a lot of material there, a lot of artwork and, and uh, um, but first and foremost, it's a, a, a collection of, you know, of books and periodicals and uh, research archival materials from various uh, baseball authors. I'll tell you, one of my recent podcast episodes was with Bob Kendrick, who's the president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, which is based in Kansas City. And I'll tell you, that was a, a more enjoyable one hour talking about history you'll never have, I don't think. And he was talking about some of the um, some of the things that he wished were in the collection and that the Negro League Baseball Museum's success, he maintained, had sort of priced it out of uh, being able to buy some of these things when they come on the market. In other words, the interest that people now have in the Negro League's history has driven up the price. <laughs> it's kind of like a, a shame in a way, but... Yeah, fortunately for us, the collection that we have uh, was donated. It was, it was, in, and in fact, uh, Bob actually was kind of instrumental in our getting that collection mm. because uh, a lot of the signed baseballs, for instance, uh, they already have at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. So Bob told this collector, uh, "Why don't you contact the Institute for Baseball Studies and the Baseball Reliquary?" because this might be something they're interested in. And it was a real smart move on his part because Bob uh, wanted to have a kind of a West Coast Negro Leagues presence. Hmm. And so, uh, uh, you know, it, I, think, I think it was very generous on his part, but so we've got a really great collection there. And, and, and in fact, Bob came out a few years ago when Whittier College uh, gave an honorary doctorate to Mudcat Grant. Mm -hmm. And the Institute was very involved with that. And Bob came out and, and attended that, uh, that event. I saw that Mudcat Grant a number of years ago wrote a book about black Americans who've won 20 games in the major leagues. Of course he was one of them. <laughs> yes, he did. It, it's a, it's an excellent book. And he was inducted into our shrine of the Eternals a few years ago also. And, and uh, uh, Mudcat reminds me a lot of, Buck O'Neill. He's just a fantastic speaker. He's a guy that uh, can talk baseball for two hours. And uh, when it's time to go home, you wish you had another two or three hours with him. He's, he's one of those kinds of, one of those kinds of guys. And, and uh, so uh, we're, we're really delighted uh, to have him in the living here in the Los Angeles area. And he's been very generous with his time. We've done a number of programs with him over the years and, and uh, delightful, delightful guy. I mean, he also needs to be in the Baseball Nickname Hall of Fame, I think. Got a good nickname, Mudcat, absolutely. And, and uh, just a great, uh, uh, you know, a presence. Uh, I, I, I always think, you know, when, when Ken Burns did his film, uh, Buck O'Neill was kind of the, the star of that. Not a lot of people knew about Buck at that time, but... I always think that if, if Buck weren't around and he had selected Mudcat Grant, Mudcat would have been as well known as Buck because he's the same kind of, uh, uh, you know, wonderful storyteller. Chris, well, what is it that got you interested in baseball locations around the country to the extent that you wrote your book? I have my show and tell for today, which is the 2003 edition of your book on my my bookshelf paperback edition and it's the kind of book that i would have loved to have written because when i travel around the country on for work or pleasure the two two kinds of places i always like to visit are places connected to baseball history and presidential history mm -hmm. places oh. museums grave stones and that kind of thing and so a good bit of that is in here the final resting places of a lot of these places what is it that got you on that path in the first place it was a combination of, of, I think, of two things. One was uh, you know, growing up in New York, I had a lot of family on my mom's side from Brooklyn. So as a kid, I was regaled with stories about um, uncles and aunts and people going to Ebbets Field to watch 
you know, the Brooklyn Dodgers, and not just go see them, but to become sort of part of the scene. They would cook, they would make, you know, sausage and peppers and sandwiches and like hand them over the wall to people like Babe Herman. And I would hear those stories growing up, which to me was just really compelling, that kind of interactivity and learning about early baseball. And then there was a couple of books, photo books I had as a kid. And I would be really curious. I'd look at old pictures of like, you know, Hilltop Park or the Polo Grounds. And I just wondered what was there. I, I was such a baseball history fan as a kid. I thought, wow, what if you wanted to go like, what, what's there today? I would ask my, my parents like, you know, can, is Ebbets Field? Well, no, they, they tore it down. And I would think, well, if you went there, maybe you could still capture some of the feeling, even though it wasn't there. And, and so that's what kind of drove it. The other thing, and the third thing, I guess, there is a third thing, was I remember, even though I was a Met fan growing up, because mostly of the whole Dodgers connection, I remember going to Yankee Stadium, the old Yankee Stadium, for the first time in about 1971 or so. And I remember walking in, and what really struck me was I thought, wow, all the places I'm being told are no longer around all, this place was around and it matched all the old photos. It's like I could p pick out where Babe Ruth stood and where Lou Gehrig stood. And it knocked me out that you actually could walk into a place like that and identify the physical landmarks. So it was really those things, but it was the curiosity of wanting to go stand in the spot where that famous picture of Ty Cobb sliding in uh, to Jimmy Ellis, the third base at Hilltop Park. You know, I would just, I would think, wow, it would be so cool to just be there. So it was really that simple. And then when I learned that, you know, Babe Ruth was laid to rest right by where I grew up, that of course became an annual pilgrimage on August 16th, the day of his death. So it was just this whole idea of, of fusing together um, a curiosity about baseball history with the geographic presence of going to places. I think the most interesting story that the one that grabbed me at least in your follow-up, the um, the audio broadcast that you've done, was the story about Babe Ruth and the alligator pond. Can you tell that story? Well, yeah. I mean, it's it's crazy. What's really interesting about it as well is it kind of ties into the pandemic, which thematically for your show. I mean, the Yan the Yankees and Red well Red Sox at that point, but a lot of teams um, trained down at Hot Springs in uh, in, in Arkansas, and you know, they would go down there for the mineral baths and all that. It was very therapeutic. But in 1918, you know, when, when the flu hit, they didn't know what it was, but a lot of players were getting sick down there, including Babe Ruth. And, you know, interestingly, World War I was going on. And that whole year is, is interesting for Ruth because that frees up. Ruth is just a pitcher at that point, but they need him in the lineup to help replace a lot of guys that aren't there. But while there that season, he hits a home run. There was a little ballpark where most of the teams played, and it sailed across the street. It, they call it sort of the birth of the long ball era because nobody had ever really thought about a baseball being hit that far before. And they measure it out at like, you know, 500 feet or something and it goes across the street and lands in an alligator pond. And, you know, today, if you go to Hot Springs, the alligator pond is still there. You know, it's one of these tourist, great little kind of side of the road tourist places. And there's a sign in the pool where the ball landed, you know, because somebody marked it right when it happened. And what was really, I was just there a few months ago. And what's really fascinating is they're like, there's an alligator who's there that they think was there that day because alligators <laughs> can live a really long time. And there's one ancient alligator in the pond so it's like it's just so crazy but but hot springs is a great place for fans to visit they developed a number of years ago a, a beautiful marker program all throughout town that marks exactly where stuff happened where the fields were where the hotels were so you can soak up a lot of baseball history from a babe ruth standpoint it's it's legendary in that he he, he was sort of merging from being just a pitcher at that point into more of an everyday player to help flesh out the lineup and get his bat in the lineup on a daily basis and so for him it was really important but again he was supposedly pretty sick that year with with flu like a lot of other people but survived it. So, so the pandemic definitely looms large, um, you know, back then as it does now as far as baseball. So what about you, Terry? What prompted you to get these two organizations going? The Institute and the Reliquary? Well, the, the Reliquary, uh, which, which I, I started in the mid-1990s, uh, I was... My, my two real passions in life uh, are, were baseball and art. 
And I was looking for a way of kind of melding those two things together. As disparate as they may seem, there's really quite a, 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 an interesting connection between the two. So that's kind of uh, how the reliquary began, was an effort to uh, bring these two passions together into some kind of a organizational or institutional a context. So uh, uh, most of the people who've been involved with the baseball reliquary over the years are come at it from, from, from the, the art field, filmmakers, artists, writers, um, and, and uh, just a way of basically kind of sharing history and the uh, specifically our interest being more on the a culture of baseball rather than the stat side of baseball. And that's kind of where I think baseball reliquary has um, uh, left its mark is, is we, and, and our, our hall of fame, which we call the shrine of the eternals. We kind of uh, throw the record books out the windows and we're more really interested in the stories about baseball, the, 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 the great stories behind baseball and also the people who have been, uh, who have left a mark in baseball uh, in terms of the culture of the game as opposed to the record books. Uh, so that, that's kind of how the, the uh, reliquary came about. And so now we have a, a very large repository of artifacts and materials. And we, we try to do about four or five exhibits each year and programs. We've done many programs with Chris over the years, for instance. Well, can, Terry, if I can interrupt for one second, I, I would be remiss if I didn't acknowledge that it was more than 20 years ago where Terry invited me to go speak and I needed kind of a name for the program and I called it Roadside Baseball. And that was really for me the birth of this whole idea. Had Terry not facilitated that, and, you know, created this great theater event, I brought artifacts out. It was, it was really amazing, but that for me, crystallized the idea. And I remember saying to Terry that night, what do you think of this as a book idea? And Terry was so encouraging and said, yeah, you know, he, I remember exactly what you said, Terry. You said, hey, you know what? Taking baseball and travel is, is a very seductive mix. That's something that I would be really surprised if people didn't get behind. And it was really his words that I was a total novice at that point about how to put it all together. And, and I you know, really credit Terry with giving me the, at least the feeling that it was possible and providing an opportunity to go talk about it publicly. And the reaction was so great. That's really that night it helped me realize, you know what, this is worth pursuing. So thank you belatedly again, Terry. Yeah, I think that was probably around, I'm going to say around 2001, maybe it was Burbank. Remember we did the program at the Burbank Library? I remember very well. Yeah, you created those beautiful posters for it. So yeah, it's almost 20 years ago. And my son at that point was, yikes, he was a little five years old or so. And he was yeah. helping out. And it was a really important night for me, though, because I never, you never know if you have an idea um, what people are going to think about or how they'll react to it. And the, the reaction was, there was such an emotional connection Mm -hmm. of your reliquary folks who understood that why that mix of going to places, why you, because you start to think you're crazy at a certain point, you know, when you're wandering parking lots. And at that point, you know, the only other person that, that I could, that was relating to it was the actor, Fred Willard, who I'd met not long before that. And, uh, you know, he was, uh, loved all that stuff. So, so your, your group and, and you again, really helped breathe life into the ideas as a concept that could be sustainable. Well, thank you. And, I, and do you remember also, Chris, we did a, we did a bus tour oh. connected with I that exhibit? No, the tour <laughs> was great. We went, we went to old, the site of Olive Memorial Park in Burbank, which was, again, another, you know, long gone site. But no, that bus tour, again, was another important thing for me. Because, again, it illustrated when you start going to places physically, that baseball mm -hmm. fans will make an innate connection with the place. And we visited so many cool spots that day. It was a wonderful, very memorable day. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I actually have, I dug up another book on my shelf, which sounds like it's right up your alley, Chris, but this one is specific, specific to New York City. It's called Babe Ruth Slept Here. A good book. Baseball Landmarks in New York City by a guy named Jim Reisler. Very another, good another one here, another show and tell. Um, a professor in the Philadelphia area 
wrote a book to everything a season about another wonderful book of Shy Park in Philadelphia. Yes. Some uh, of my favorite photos of Shy Park are in that book. Terrific, Shy. absolutely terrific book. I drove there once, probably 15 years ago, and of course the stadium is long gone and it's been replaced by a, a huge church. But the, uh, the famous picture of the attached homes beyond the right field fence, uh, which Connie Mack ended up raising the fence and then the fans there called it the spike fence because the idea was to block the view of people on the roof. The free, no free baseball. Exactly. It's sort of like what the Cubs, sort of like what the Cubs did with Wrigley Field and wanting to charge the residents uh, a fee to watch the games. Well, you know what? When you them to charge other people to watch the game. To your point, when you find little, even though ballparks are gone, people wonder, well, why would you go, go, go to the site? It's looking for little things like that, things that were connected to the ballpark. One of my favorite sites in L.A. is where Wrigley Field, the original Wrigley Field used to be, because you can see the homes that were outside the left field wall, and it shows like Home Run Derby. They're so prominent. They're, they're almost like part of the, of the scene, you know, those homes, because it illustrated how low the wall was, how the homes were just across the street. And so the fact that those homes are all still there, it allows you to, A, fill in all the blanks. But also, I always wonder, what was it like if you were kids in the neighborhood when there were just balls constantly flying over the wall, especially when they were filming that show? That's all it was about. They, they didn't have... You know, that show is so beautifully simple and quiet and subtle, but they didn't, they had people on the field collecting baseballs, but outside the fence, they didn't have staffers out there. That was just free game for the kids in the neighborhood. So oftentimes when, when you wander old neighborhoods, you can pick up on intrinsic connections to the ballpark that used to be there. Terry, I know that part of the Shrine of the Eternals induction is the Hilda Award. And of course, the name for Hilda Chester, the renowned fan of the Brooklyn Dodgers. Can you explain a little bit about what what that award is, who it goes to. Yes, well, we started the Hilda Award uh, about 20 years ago. And the idea for that award was, uh, since the Reliquary is really kind of a fan-based organization, um, and, and we wanted to be able to celebrate uh, baseball fandom and the way that baseball fans celebrate and honor the game uh, and 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 uh, so we started this award, which we give every year, and it just goes to a baseball fan, uh, kind of for distinguished service to the game. Uh, and uh, the uh, uh, it's 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 become kind of a, a you know it's a wonderful award because it honors baseball fans and their unique love affair with the game, and and uh, uh, we realize they're really you know, the, in the history of baseball, the fans are the ones who are often kind of left out of the history. So uh, that's what it's about. The award itself is an old beat up uh, cowbell that's encased in a plexiglass box with an engraved inscription. And we like to call it the Baseball Reliquaries version of the Oscar or, or the Emmy. It, it goes to uh, the, the, the kind of our baseball royalty. Uh, a good example is last year, the award went to Ralph Carhart, who uh, is the uh, uh, mastermind behind the Hall Ball Project. He fished an old baseball out of a creek that runs alongside Doubleday Field and spent years going around and photographing this baseball with all of the, at the grave sites of all of the deceased Hall of Famers and also having his picture taken of the ball with all of the living Hall of Famers in a, in a way to kind of unite the history of the game, uh, the, the immortals of the game from the past and, and the present. So that's kind of the, uh, uh, the nature of, of, of that award. And it's become, uh, I mean, Hilda Chester is like a big part of the baseball reliquary. We, we start each ceremony with a bell ringing in her honor. and. Uh, uh, Chris knows he's been to the ceremonies and lots of fans bring their cowbells, just bells to ring. And we start the ceremony for, with about a, a, a minute long bell ringing, this amazing cacophony of, of sound. And, and, and uh, so Hilda's uh, kind of an important presence in, in terms of the, the baseball reliquary. It seems to me that the theme that runs through all this 
is the fun side of baseball. It's not necessarily the achievements and it's not necessarily the stars. It's the fun that accompanies the baseball experience, the people in the game who provide the fun and the fans. And it gets me to thinking for the first time really why it is that other baseball museums, including the Hall of Fame, do not pay tribute to the fans who, of course, without the fans at the games paying for tickets and watching on TV, there is no professional baseball. Well, that's true. And that's one of the reasons why we really wanted to have this award and a celebration of the fans, because they are the kind of uh, the overlooked commodity in baseball. I think so much of the professional game today uh, is focused on the corporatization of the game and, and uh, there's so much money involved uh, and, 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 and the history of baseball is so oriented around that, that the fans sometimes kind of get left out. And, and so we're an organization that's basically comprised of baseball fans. And, and so we wanted to make sure that the fans have an opportunity uh, to be celebrated and also to be able to honor people that uh, uh, we feel uh, have, have kind of uh, maybe not been honored by organizations like the Hall of Fame. Uh, in 1999, when we had our first uh, shrine ceremony, for instance, the first class of inductees was Bill Veck, Doc Ellis, and Kurt Flood. Kurt Flood, of course, was deceased, but his widow, Judy Pace Flood, was at the ceremony and she thanked and acknowledged the, the members of the baseball reliquary and, and the idea of being able to have an organization where the fans can honor the players that they felt uh, uh, were significant in, in certain ways. And she said that's really a unique concept and something that she really uh, ad admired uh, is the fact that it wasn't, you know, a select group of sports writers or a group that was uh, set up by the Hall of Fame, and it, it was it was the fans that were allowed to have their say and their uh, input, and so that that left quite a impression upon me. And I realized uh, with that ceremony, our first ceremony, that we'd really hit upon something in terms of honoring uh, people for their contributions to the game. That maybe uh, because they didn't have the statistical achievements which would, be a, would have allowed them to get into the Hall of Fame, uh, they still made major contributions and should have uh, uh, an opportunity to be, to be honored by the fans. Now, I did a rough count before, and I counted, I think, nine members of the Baseball Hall of Fame who have also been honored by the Shrine of the Eternals. And I'm wondering, what, what was it about them that got them into the Shrine of the Eternals. Yeah, we don't make a, dis we don't distinguish. I mean, we have every year on our ballot, we have 50, uh, 50 uh, baseball luminaries uh, who are uh, on, on candidates and our members vote upon them and the top three vote getters are elected. And there's always a few people who are, you know, uh, who, who are, are Hall of Famers. Uh, and I, I, I guess, uh, the people you're referring to would be people like Yogi Berra, mm -hmm. Satchel Paige, Bill Veck. Uh, they, they were elected into the Hall of Fame, but uh, they were also, uh, their, their contributions uh, to the game were, 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 were quite significant, not just uh, in terms of on, on the field of play. Obviously, uh, Berra and Paige were among the greatest athletes of their era, but they made major contributions in terms of uh, well, with Bear, in terms of the, the language and linguistics of the game, uh, Satchel Page, in terms of just the great mother load of stories surrounding him, and 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 Bill Veck, who uh, to some extent extent was the spiritual mentor uh, to the baseball reliquary, a, a baseball owner who really believed in the fans first and in and in, 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 in making the game as fun as possible. And I'll tell you, one of the best compliments that I think I ever received was in 1999 when we inducted Vec uh, and Mike Vec, his son, said, you know, he said, if my dad ever decided to start a baseball museum, he said it would be a lot like the baseball reliquary. And that, that left quite an impression on me because uh, 
The first book I read as a, as a kid growing up was Vekas and Rec, and it left an enormous impression on me. And so I sometimes think I wouldn't have started the baseball reliquary without, without uh, reading that book and, and being kind of a, a devotee of, of, of Vek. Chris, I know the last year you gave the, the keynote speech at the induction. And what struck me in reading the speech was the story you told about your uncle Frank and Banner Day Chase Stadium. And I'm wondering if you can synopsize that. that sure. I mean, that Banner Day was a really big deal. Uh, kids would take a bed sheet and, and, you know, design a slogan. And then I think it was between the double header. They would mm-hmm. open up the field and you would parade around the warning track. Think of that today, like how that would work. And you would, you know, there'd be judges who would, um, you know, pick your, the winners or the finalists or whatever. And I had an uncle who, one of those Brooklyn Dodger fans I had mentioned earlier, my uncle Frank Catapano, who there were always these kind of, uh, he had this mythology that swirled around him. I remember as a kid, people sort of treaded lightly around him due to some past lives that he may have led um, with some um, shadier figures in the New York underworld. And he had also been a compulsive gambler, which I learned later, which made total sense to me when he says, hey, he was visiting our house one day in Westchester County. And he said, we should go to Banner Day. And I said, great. He was, he and I, I, I was very fond of him and he and I had a nice relationship and uh, got, got the bed sheet down. And he said, hey, the slogan we'll use is place your bets on the Mets. And I thought it was great, it rhymed, you know, and, and we designed it and we colored it together. It was really like a very sweet project. And we, he got the tickets and everything. He always got great seats somehow. And we went down there. And as we were parading, I remember New York City cops were kind of elbowing each other saying, hey, I like that one. I like that one. The guys, you know, offering security on the field. And we won. I think they picked three winners that year. And our banner won. You know, it was like this incredible thing where you got to go in the dugout and this whole deal. And they gave you a baseball. But it was, um, I miss things like that. It's funny. An event like that to me is has has baseball reliquary written all over it because it's a little silly, it's a little crazy, it's fan-based, and it remind it just harkens back to an era where you did things like that. And, you know, there were things like Bat Day where you'd get a regulation Louisville slugger going into a ballpark. And a lot of things we don't have anymore, like Banner Day. And so that's why, you know, getting back to what Terry does for a minute, I, I think it's really important is to to remember and celebrate moments like that that are no longer here, that were very much in the spirit of, of Bill Beck, these, you know, great promotions and things that were all about fan engagement. One other thing I would add to Terry's definition of the reliquary, just as a fan myself, and that I appreciate, it's not, a lot of it's kind of quirky and, and offbeat, but there's also, I think, and Terry, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I want to say serious note, but there is some gravitas in somebody like a Kurt Flood. There are people that are inducted that I think are are important because they're they're people who are iconoclasts, who baseball never fully embraced for being controversial. And I think the reliquary has this kind of area as well for people like that, who are the people that that broke down walls and did things that were really important, but that baseball sometimes has a hard time squaring with because they don't fit the perfect model, you know, of like the model citizen thing of what, what you have to be like. And I think the reliquary, again, allows for people who are just the outsiders and the misfits, the rule breakers, the people who did things uh, that they really believed in. And I think that uh, for me, anyhow, it's reason I like and respect the reliquary so much is it, it acknowledges and, and encompasses those people as well. That's a, that's a great point. Chris, and again, to, uh, go back to our first ceremony in 1999 when we started the shrine i I had no idea uh, whether this was going to work out whether this was going to be a viable concept Uh, and and uh, i found out early on with the first ceremony that it would be and and it happened with our very first inductee doc ellis of course doc was famous for pitching a uh, no hitter while under the influence of LSD. And he came out from Texas to the ceremony. And uh, just a few minutes into his speech, he broke down. He got very emotional. And he uh, said that he had never received any kind of honors in his baseball career. And, and uh, I had re- introduced, when I introduced him, I read a letter that Jackie Robinson had written to him when he was. Uh, being very outspoken 
uh, and and uh, uh, Jackie said, you know, you're you're to be commended for your outspokenness, but uh, many honors that would ordinarily come your way will not because of the fact that you've taken a stance against the baseball establishment. And here it was in, in 1999, uh, years after he retired from playing, he was on the uh, at the lectern at the Pasadena Public Library, and he it just kind of hit him that he had. He had never received any kind of honors before like this. Even though this was a modest organization, we had just kind of started up. It was our first ceremony. To have him give that validation um, and, and, to, and to actually break down uh, emotionally, um, it was very, I, I realized then and there that this concept was viable this idea of a kind of a people's hall of fame, yeah. a term which Jim Bouton used a couple of years later when he was inducted. Uh, I realized that this was something that was going to work. And here it is now, uh, 21 years later, this, this uh, class of inductees that we, electees that we just voted upon the last couple of months will be our, is our 22nd class. So we're still, we're still going strong, uh, you know, 22 years later. And, and, one other thing I want to mention uh, is that uh, even though we, we kind of, uh, we love Bill Vec and a lot of our artifacts and things that we have are uh, kind of push the envelope a little bit and are a little, uh, uh, they're a little bit in terms of, uh, you know, the fun side of baseball and quirky side of baseball, uh, oddball things like a, a well related to Babe Ruth, we have a, a uh, partially desiccated uh, a hot dog that Babe Ruth ate in the 1920s, things like that. So people always have this idea that, that the uh, baseball reliquary is kind of this gag organization. And we do have that side. We love that side, but we also have a very serious side. It's very much represented by the Shrine of the Eternals. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I think that's a lot of the uh, baseball establishment uh, doesn't understand that they they think it's just this kind of quirky offbeat organization, and they don't realize that what we do is we cover the whole spectrum of the baseball experience, from the fun side to the very very serious side. So I I often consider the shrine ceremony a good example of something that um, uh, covers the whole spectrum, and many of the ball players that we've honored who've come to the ceremonies have said uh, it's the best two-hour experience they've ever had in their lives. And the, the range of emotional, uh, the, the emotion of the, of the festivities and, and all the, you know, uh, we have a you know, the bell ringing, we have uh, really unusual instrumental versions of Take Me Out to the Ball Game and the National Anthem and all the speakers. Uh, it's, it's, I don't know, it's, it's hard to say. You almost have to be there uh, and come to one of these ceremonies to experience. It's very different from the Hall of Fame. Are, are there any people who sort of um, had had a, had a different or not maybe an opposite reaction, who did not take the award seriously and therefore would not acknowledge it, would not even would not show up for the ceremony, would not even respond to your notification? Few inductees that we've had uh, in recent years uh, that, and I'll mention them in particular, Vin Scully and Don Newcomb, who uh, we went through the Dodgers organization to contact these people, and we got hooked up with individuals who were their supposed business managers, who basically, you know, never really got the word to them that uh, about our what we were doing and and so when I was finally able to get in touch with them weeks before the ceremony they weren't able to come out or whatever but no it, it, almost everybody who we've ever honored uh, and it, you know that's come to the ceremony nobody's nobody's rejected it and and a, a lot of them when I call them cold turkey and say hey you've been elected to the shrine of the eternals they'll you know, the, <laughs> their natural response is, well, what the hell is that? Mm -hmm. And, and uh, but once they actually come to the event, 
people like Minnie Minoso and Dick Allen, uh, you know, uh, uh, they absolutely love it. And, and these are the people that have, that have said Jim Bowden, Marvin Miller, they've just said it's, it's, it's been uh, two of the best baseball hours that they've ever spent in their life and they just love it. So, so uh, I think the word has gotten out and, and uh, although, you know, it's still, it's a, a situation where, uh, uh, you know, sometimes we have to, you know, uh, have somebody kind of introduce our organization to them. Uh, Bob Costas, who was elected this year, for instance, I know you had him on your show uh, a few weeks ago, uh, Hillel. Uh, Bob, uh, uh, I spoke to him just the other day, and he was delighted with being with his induction, and he said uh, he'll definitely plan to attend the ceremony. We don't know when it's going to be yet, of course, due to the okay. coronavirus. It probably won't be until 2021 at some point, but, but he'll definitely, uh, he said he'll definitely plan to attend. That's terrific. That's, that's really, really nice to know. Chris, you know, you posted something so interesting a couple of weeks ago, I think, about the passing of Fred Willer, who you mentioned earlier, the fact that you knew him, and you, you posted two really nice pictures of him in now gone stadiums. And the one, the one of the two that really said a lot to me was the one that he took, or he had taken of him in 1970, 50 years ago, in Pittsburgh at Forbes Field right before it was knocked down. And you said that you have had that you had had a number of conversations with him about his love of baseball history and stadiums. Can you can you explain a little bit about what he said were the reasons why that history appealed to him as it did? Sure. I mean, we had hundreds of conversations and visited many places. I met Fred the first time in about 1990 at a party in Oxnard and. Uh, which is up uh, above Santa Barbara. Wait, above Santa Barbara? No, before Santa Barbara, but up the California coast, a little bit north of Los Angeles. And um, we met, and I, I had always been a big fan of Fred Willard. I thought he was very funny and very offbeat, obviously. But I forget how it came up, but we started talking baseball, and we were in Oxnard. And I was aware that um, in about 1914 or so that Fred Snodgrass, who was from the area, had uh, helped stage a ball game in Oxnard. There was a book written about it called The Day the Giants Came to Oxnard, <laughs> a very specific uh, niche title. And Fred was blown away that, I remember he, he was an Indians fan. And we're just talking, I forget if baseball came up, but I mentioned Oxnard and he goes, oh, you're kidding me. And, and I said, does that mean something to you? And then we both got into a very heavy late night baseball history discussion. And within I think about a week, we were both wandering um, Olive Memorial Field in Burbank, which was still there. And our friendship was born of this love uh, of, of baseball history. And he dug up those photos from Forbes Field. He told me how he had been on the road with the Ace Trucking Company, his comedy troupe. And uh, he had snuck in. Forbes it was closed at that, was getting ready for, uh, you know, to be uh, destroyed. And he, he told me, he goes, I found some security guy. He looked the other way. I think Fred might have given him a couple of bucks. And Fred had his camera, which he would set up at a variety of spots throughout the ballpark with a self-timer. And he would photograph himself looking very serious for such a funny guy. And I asked him about that. And he said, well, he goes, it is very serious. He goes, when you're in there, he goes, I have tears in my eyes while I'm in there. And I remember years later, couple of years later, maybe like in the early 90s, I was in Pittsburgh for the All-Star game, which is like 95 or so, and cell phones were new. And I called Fred from the remaining piece of the wall at Forbes Field. Mm -hmm. And he couldn't believe it. He couldn't believe it because you're standing there right now. And again, he got very, for, for a very funny guy, he got very emotional about it. And he took this stuff to heart. Fred was a very passionate baseball fan. And he, I wish I could find it. He gave me a tape that he made of himself, a VHS video. When League Park in Cleveland, he grew up going to see ball games as a kid. When it had been long and abandoned, probably in the late 80s, he went there with a, with a VHS camera and he narrated this really beautiful, poignant, um, piece he went in they, there was piece of the grandstand was still there at that point and he kind of got in there in the dark catacomb like structure and you hear him narrating again this beautiful very rich and detailed and vivid description of what it was like to go to ball games here as a kid so Fred had this whole other 
aspect of his personality, which were, where he would get lost in these places. And I would call him up and say, hey, let's go to Wrigley Field. And he and I would go wander Wrigley Field and, and take photos and shoot videos. So yeah, but the real large basis of our friendship was based on uh, baseball wandering, you know, and he, he knew his stuff and uh, he loved all that. And remember the day at Gilmore Field in LA where CBS uh, was then, we went to the ceremony there that day, the unveiling of the plaque. And yeah, Fred and I had a ton of great baseball adventures and it was a really important part of our friendship. I'll tell you, I wish I knew about his love of baseball stadium history and also the fact that he went to Lee Park because in 2013, I wrote a feature story for the New York Times on the plans of Cleveland to redevelop Lee Park and place the baseball right. field back on the undeveloped field, which had never been developed after the Indians left and knocked down the stadium. And I interviewed all sorts of interesting people, including the guy who started the last Indians game that was played there, who oh, wow. died about a year ago, Bob Kozava, who, of course, pitched for the Yankees later on in his career and induced that famous pop-up that Billy Martin caught on the run that Jackie Robinson had hit with a base loader. Bob Kozava was in his late 80s at the time, and he's since passed away. But, um, I, boy, I would have loved to have talked to Fred Willard about that. You know, it's interesting. Fred was very low key. I sort of drew him out a little bit, but to him, it was a very personal, very pilgrimage based kind of thing that he didn't actively promote. It was serious to him. Mm -hmm. It was like Stations of the Cross, you know, and I always noticed when he, we would have catches sometimes at these places and his, his whole demeanor was, was very serious. And it was like he was visiting holy sites. That's what it meant to him. Which, when you say you had catches with him, where, in, on which former stadium sites did you guys have a catch? Well, we took, when, when, when in Burbank, when Oliver Memorial was still there, we, we, to my son, I think, was two at that point. We, Fred and I took him in. We had a catch on that field right there. Uh, Wrigley Field, L.A., a number of times. Um, the day at Gilmore Field, when the plaque was then we brought our mitts and, and had a baseball there. So it was a, a variety of places. And he would always call me from the road if he was traveling, if he was at a certain spot, or he, we would sort of trade notes. We also would collect ballpark dirt. That was the thing of Fred's. We would compare our dirt samples of, well, I got, you know, I have Angel Stadium. We have Dodger Stadium. We do trade dirt samples. I mean, Fred was, was really into it. And, um, you know, I liked going to baseball games with him as well because it was always a good chance to just sort of reflect. And Fred loved talking about going his experiences as a kid going to League Park and then Municipal Stadium. So, but but again, he was he, he was I can't stress enough the seriousness for the, for such a funny guy. This was the other part of his brain and heart working where he got very cold. I mean, his literally his eyes would well up in certain places because he thought about the game. You know what he used to do? He, I remember he told me he went to, and this is, this is the essence of Fred Willard and what I love about Fred, not just as a friend, but a baseball fan. But he went to the site of Sportsman's Park in St. Louis, probably in the 80s, and he had cassettes of broadcasts of old games there. And he would sit on the field by himself and just listen to cassettes of famous baseball moments by himself. You know, yeah, that's um, amazing. That's an amazing. He wouldn't story. do it for attention. Yeah. He literally would go and get lost in these places. And the most excited I think he ever got was when he was in Baltimore for something, and he went to St. Mary's, the site of uh, St. Mary's Industrial School for Boys, where Babe Ruth was famously lodged for a number of years after being dumped there by his parents. And there's a very famous picture of Babe Ruth um, wearing a glove. I, Brother Matthias. I don't think he's in the picture, but it's the glove that he gave him. And Fred went and lined up. There was like a row of bushes or something that was still there. Fred was so obsessive about detail. And he found this marker, the bushes, that allowed him to get in that spot where Babe Ruth was like a teenager holding with his, with his catcher's mitt. And Fred was so excited to have found that spot. He was just like a little kid, could not believe. He called me, he's like, you'll never guess where I am. I found it, I found it, I found it. You know, wow. it was such a, a revelation for him. So yeah, he took this stuff really seriously. I did too. And again, we were, we used to joke that we were like the only people we knew that were this crazy about saying, you know, it was right about here. So that was our thing. It was right about here, right about here. Uh, Another wonderful uh, comedian and actor that uh, Chris introduced me to 
who was also for, from Cleveland. And he wasn't as a, obsessive a baseball fan as Fred Willard, but he was a wonderful guy uh, that Chris might want to say a few words about is, is the late Jack Riley. Yeah, Jack Riley from the old Bob, people knew him from the Bob Newhart show as the, uh, you know, bitter Mr. Carlin. But, but Jack, you know, there, I have to say there was this kind of, kind of Cleveland comedy mafia, we used to call them. It was Jack Riley, it was Martin Mull, Fred Willard, Pat McCormick, Tim Conway. They weren't just really funny. They were all really great baseball fans. And I was at that point in my life, writing and directing a lot of commercials and using those guys. So I would use my connections at that point. Whenever the Indians came to town once a year, I would get tickets for all of them. We'd all go to a game. And those were my favorite games to go to because you would sit amongst these really funny, talented guys who became like little kids at a baseball game. And between McCormick and Fred and Martin Mull, you would hear, you would just eavesdrop. I became like a fly on the wall listening to their stories about the Indians and all that. So yeah, Jack, Jack was a wonderful, warm-hearted guy, and I wanted Terry to get to know him because Terry was doing these great baseball events that I knew Fred would want to be involved with. In terms of your induction ceremony this summer and the whether the library can reopen anytime soon, and if so, in what, in what, um, under what conditions? Well, uh, for the reliquary, I, I, I think we're going to have to definitely. Uh, uh, postpone the 2020 ceremony until 2021 um, just as the Hall of Fame is done because uh, uh, we don't have our own facility so we often we usually use public library venues to have our shrine ceremony and I think most public libraries uh, uh, even those that will reopen this year uh, probably will not open their auditoriums uh, and so uh, what we're looking at doing, uh, as many organizations are, is postponing our ceremony until next year. Uh, what we're thinking about doing is probably having two ceremonies in 2021. The 2020 ceremony uh, on one day and the 2021 ceremony on another day because uh, each ceremony we have three inductees, we have two award winners, uh, a, we have a uh, keynote address. Uh, it would be just too long of a day to bring two ceremonies together. So we may do a 2021 ceremony uh, after the 2020. I'm not sure exactly how that'll work out. Generally, we've done our ceremonies uh, on the third week of July. Uh, the Hall of Fame does its uh, induction ceremony on the fourth Sunday in July. We do ours on the third Sunday the week before. We could possibly do the 2020 ceremony uh, on the third Sunday in July of 2021, and then maybe in August do the 2021 ceremony. Chris, what are you looking forward to when this situation resolves itself and the health risks pass in terms of your sports interest and your sports fandom? Chris, what are you looking forward to when this situation resolves itself and the health risks pass in terms of your sports interest and your sports fandom? Um, well, for one, just kind of the day-to-day -day of knowing baseball is being played someplace. I think a lot of the, um, you know, at this point of the pandemic, you see a lot of infighting among people about different groups that have different opinions about things. I think a lot of that's been exacerbated by the lack of good distraction by things like baseball, especially baseball. I think not having anything like that has made people really kind of, you're kind of getting metal on metal arguments and debates and things where if we had something else to think about, it would buffer a lot of what people are going through, which is obvious frustration and disagreements about things that are just, you know, very unnatural and very unprecedented. That said, I would also love to hit the road and take in a bunch of parks, take a couple of weeks and just go catch some games, minor league and major league alike. And, uh, you know, just just get into that that zone again of going out that beautiful feeling you get when you walk into a park and see that green, you know, wherever you happen to be, you know, just knowing again, I'm uh, to, to me, ball games are very sanctuary like wherever you are, you know, and I, I never get over that feeling if you're a real fan. So I'm just anxious to do that. Just go to a freaking game, you know, and sit with with somebody special and uh, and talk about baseball while there's baseball being played behind you. 
I, I have a feeling that whenever baseball resumes with any kind of fan presence, and it's clear that baseball, basketball, hockey, if they are to take place this year, maybe football too, that they will not take place with fans, at least at the beginning. I have a feeling that the first game, whether it's this year, next year, or even the year after that, that the first game in which fans attend, there'll be a lot of, um, it, it'll be the kind of thing that, that will be memorable for everybody there. And the kind of thing that when people say, well, where were you when? Mm-hmm. It's sort of something you experience in your own life. I think that will be one of the things that people will remember. For sure. And you know, you think about how empty a lot of the games were during the regular season. The good news is you can have people sit apart and it will create the illusion that it's slightly more full. You know, you can sit a few seats away and probably be fine and take all the proper precautions. I, that's what I hope we can get to. Baseball is played outside in the sun with the wind. I mean, there are elements that will help. You know, and again, as long as people maintain and do the things you need to do, I think baseball can get up and running before other sports just because of the dynamics and, and the physical realities of where and how baseball is played. I do think one thing I, I, I will throw out there, though, at the end here is that the one unfortunate part, I think the days of things like getting autographs and those interactions, that's probably done for a long time. So I feel bad for kids that won't be able to have that experience of waiting with a baseball, of waiting with a pen, those incredible feelings you would have as a kid. You know, I don't think we'll see a lot of that for a while because I'm sure baseball will will interrupt those kinds of firsthand interactions. Well, Chris Epting and Terry Kenneth, thanks so much for appearing on Hello Colors ABC's Athletics Beyond Coronavirus. Let's hope that we do put coronavirus behind us and beyond. And I wish you guys and your families the best of health going forward. 